Hello and welcome to Life and Inside Job. I'm Kate and I'm fascinated with the inner life and how we can nourish it so that we can be more centered, creative and at peace with ourselves and the world. This episode is the first one with two guests, Dr. Claire Phipps and Caroline Phipps Urch, who have an excellent podcast, The Menopause Sisters. Claire is a GP trainer and mentor in London with a special interest in menopause and reproductive health. Caroline is a trauma-aware yoga teacher and also weaves cognitive behavioral therapy into her work. It was a delight to have sisters on the show, but that wasn't only why I invited them. We're all in the positive menopause tribe and wanting to look at the inner world lying beneath menopause experience. So we decided to take a serious look at how trauma from earlier stages in life may recur and trigger emotional and physical symptoms and how we might address this. If you're experiencing challenging emotional symptoms, then this episode will be really useful for you. I, I'm really interested in hearing about the emotional difficulties that show up in perimenopause. Um, my, my experience with clients and with uh, retreat participants is that people are um, often knocked over by uh, traumatic, remembering traumatic incidents that triggered, re-triggered in their midlife years quite strongly, very often, by things that they thought they had sorted out and I hear that a lot, but I, but I've dealt with this, mm -hmm. and it's come up again. And I wondered if you have that experience in in your clients and pupils, uh, not pupils, what do you call them, students? Mm. <laughs> yeah. So, Karen, I might I might hand over to you initially for the for the trauma. Yeah, I mean, there have been a couple of small, smaller studies done in the States around this, actually, nothing kind of um, huge, but those who have had adverse life experiences, so not just adverse child experience, but some sort of traumatic experience. And I kind of like to use the definition of trauma being something that has changed your life significantly. So, you know, something like long COVID is traumatic, you know, it, it completely knocks you back. So it's not always thinking about um, alcohol abuse or, you know, child abuse. It's not always, you know, these kind of extreme things that sometimes we call to mind when we think about a trauma, you know, an earthquake situation um, is a traumatic experience, but it's something that has changed your life dramatically. And that creates a stress response in your body. Um, but everybody responds to stress and trauma in their own way. Um, so, you know, somebody who's had a similar, if we talk about the earthquake response, for example, you know, one person might carry that with them forever. Somebody else might find that they have dealt with it okay and move on. However, as we come through perimenopause, 
the stress response comes back partly because these fluctuating hormones um, and as our hormones fluctuate stress response sometimes kind of literally responds to to the fluctuating hormones um, and we can find this stress response triggering symptoms and making them worse so it's 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 been discussed and researched very very small numbers that somebody who's had a traumatic or adverse experience in their life is likely to have more severe symptoms whatever those symptoms might be so you know it might be hot flushes it might be anxiety or depression um, but if something has happened it might be that somebody uh, somebody has experienced postnatal depression and that that manifests as, a, as, as another anxiety of or bout of depression as they come through perimenopause and menopause so again i'm sort of on shaky ground here because there isn't a lot of research around this topic but within sort of clients or participants in in my classes in my menopause yoga classes and trauma-informed trauma-aware classes it's definitely there things begin to arise and just as you were saying kate people think maybe they've put that to bed and then it begins to rise again mm. um, and my understanding is, is having looked at it and read a lot around the subject is that it's simply to do with our our stress response this cortisol rising um, and everything just getting a little bit of out of sync out of balance again um, so yes um, I have and in that situation if somebody is having worsening symptoms or whether they're physical or emotional um, can they relate the symptoms to the trauma necessarily? Not always, not always. Mm -hmm. So it's it's also sometimes about joining the dots. Obviously, for many people, they haven't realised that that adverse experience was such an adverse experience. If that makes sense, you know, for some people, they would have locked it and locked it in a drawer. <laughs> you know, put the padlock on and just shut it away. So suddenly, something they thought they had locked away is beginning to arise. And you know, is, is your beautiful book Second Spring? I love that term. You know, this Second Spring, things do arise. They come out. We're trying to kind of shed this previous self almost as we come through this transition into our Second Spring. So there's that, but there's also those that who maybe have dealt with those experiences but they re-arise all those who have been affected by trauma and never really dealt with it so you know might well have had attachment issues and these beginning to manifest in a different a different way so i want i want somebody can you i want i want some academic to write a, a paper about um attachment theory and menopause oh wouldn't that be great academics yeah. go do it <laughs> oh, that'd be juicy. It would be. I think it would be amazing because I think actually those who have got the sort of anxious attachment, you know, anxiety can arise and get stronger. Those who have got the disassociation or you know the kind of wanting to pull back, I have an element of that in myself. I just would like to run away and, and go into a cave, and I can put my hand up and say that, yay. <laughs> quite happy to hide from the world for the next few years so i'd love to see more research on this mm -hmm. you know especially in the uk as well but it's all, all to do with funding isn't it so that is my kind of take on it my understanding of it mm -hmm. um but i'm not i'm sure claire has yeah claire, has more what, to what add, do you so. see in your practice so again there's little evidence around around a lot of this and, and like 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 with all perimenopause and menopause studies, there is little 
little research that's been done. Um, and what I tend to do when, when there has been little research is think about rather than evidence-based research, I think about practice-based research and, and think about what's happening and what's, what are women coming in with and what are they saying to me? And more often than not, if a woman has had some sort of trauma, then they experience symptoms differently in the perimenopause. Now, you could argue that that is just an individual perspective. You know, we all experience the symptoms differently. But certainly, if you've had a trauma, you're much more likely to experience psychological, cognitive difficulties to a greater extent than you might some of the physical symptoms of the perimenopause. And in the same way that Caroline and you mentioned, Kate, is I often think of um, trauma, whatever that trauma it is for you, is being boxed up in the mind. And that can be boxed up because you've dealt with it, or it can be boxed up because you want to forget about it. But our brains, when they're fully estrogenized, are really, really good at doing that. And the box, if you think of the walls of the box as our estrogen, the estrogen keeps it in, keeps it closed up, keeps it all intact and tight. And then as the estrogen levels start to fall, you start to expose those traumas again and you start to see them. And you may have dealt with that and you may have thought you dealt with it and you may have dealt with it. But actually what we find is as those levels fluctuate, those traumas just start to peep again. And they start to just wave their hands and go, I'm still here. You know, deep down in your memory, I'm still here. And I think with the best will in the world, it's very hard not to experience or re-experience those traumas. And so we must, we should be asking, we should be asking these questions. And even those questions are difficult, particularly when you're having the symptoms, which could be traumatic, but we should be asking them because if we don't ask, we don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And people are at liberty to not answer though, answer as well. And I, I think that's, there's, there's a bit of discussion as to whether questions about trauma should, particularly sexual trauma should appear on client forms. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think you have to be really careful. I think you have to be able to judge that situation and ask the question when it feels appropriate. It. and it's you're right it's not always appropriate there are times when you you know the questions there but you avoid it or you sidestep it and you do that for a very particular reason um and one of those reasons might be that actually because it's going to make that person first and they're not ready to be asked that question you've got to gauge that yeah and i think if we are coming from a trauma aware approach i don't feel that you know there's this necessity for everyone to be trauma informed you know and do all this training but actually if we're able to think about language mm. think about the space we are using whether that's in a gp surgery or as a therapist or as a you know yoga teacher um then we're able to reduce that flight and fright response that can be triggered all those symptoms worsening in a situation so I talk about very much about language it's much more invitational um but there's a studio i teach and it's quite a loud noise when the heating comes on it's quite a loud sort of clicking or bang and actually something i name if there's somebody new in that class i try to remember to do it every every week i'm there but if there's somebody new in that class i, I will say just so you're aware sometimes when the heating because actually that could make you jump if you're not expecting it 
So it's just think, and it's also just thinking about how you present yourself. You know, I'm really aware that I am fully covered when I teach a yoga class. You know, my boobs aren't hanging out. <laughs> Are you not in your bra top? My little, bra, my little bra top and my hot pants. There is a class occasionally, I haven't been to it actually since before the pandemic, and I'm always the oldest person in that class wearing the most clothes. It always makes me smile to be 18 again. But anyway, that's, you know, but you know, it's just thinking about these little things, which I think we can all do as practitioners, can't we? Use this kind of just invitational, gentle language and think about how we present ourselves, the spaces we're, we're, we're you know, working in. And also from a yoga teacher point of view, you know, what I'm, what I'm teaching, I'm not going to be teaching a, a strong breath because that can exacerbate that flight and flight response. So it's going to be, you know, I am going to be really aware of, of who's in that, in that room. And I think we don't know anybody's life experience. We don't know what that person, when they walk into our room, into our surgery, wherever we are working in, in the work that we do, we do not know that person's real life story. And so we just have to make an assumption that we need to treat everybody with care and kindness, which, you know, we hope that we are doing anyway, but with a, a trauma aware approach, I think that's, that's just really, really important. So I, I'm gonna sort of throw the throw the cat in the throw the cat in the bag and suggest that where these old emotional patterns are coming, I love I love I love what you said about the estrogen box. <laughs> I'm in my little estrogen box. <laughs> and when they burst out of there, that this is a movement towards healing. So this is the body's movement towards resolving the trauma. Um, and, you know, here we come into this kind of, it's like, it's like a crossroads in between like, okay, let's slam the box, <laughs> slam the lid, shut it down, or whether we are, have a more cyclical, holistic type view, and we want to find a safe way of allowing that, um, that trauma to complete its cycle yeah and I think that um you know that box may be reopened and you may have I mean I think what's interesting about trauma and particularly trauma around the perimenopause is that some women really do feel that they have dealt with whatever it was that that was was the problem and they may have dealt with that really well the problem is it comes a few years later when those skills that perhaps you utilised before or the way you managed it just aren't quite at your fingertips anymore. And so actually you need to use different skills and you need to use other skills, different ones that you learned before. And so I think there is a tendency in all of us to put the lid down on that box. But, and actually there's, there's times when that's okay. You know, there's times when we go, well, that's fine you can you know we revisit we revisit this when we're ready but i think again it's that invitational language about speaking and discussing with women you know if it feels right for you to start exploring that how can we do that how can we best hold you in that space and take you on that journey that we know could be again traumatic for you 
And that has to be done quite carefully, doesn't it? It has to be done very mindfully um, because the trauma may not be experienced the same way as it was before. It may be better, it may be worse. But I think that we have the opportunity when we are with women who have experienced trauma of, of allowing them to open that lid and allowing them to share if they want to. Um, and, and I think that's, that's I guess, a, a sort of more holistic approach to the perimenopause, but also knowing that, that it can be really helpful to have that talking therapy, do that yoga class, speak to your best friend about what's going on, you know, go for a swim, go for a run, do something that helps support you. Um, that was a bit of a random answer to your no, I think that was a very, I think that was, that was a brilliant answer because what you were saying was, <laughs> what really caught my attention was um, that what worked before may not work now. And also mm -hmm. that people kind of have the skills themselves, you know, mm -hmm. they, we, we kind of require a, a safe place, a, sorry, a safe place to, to retrieve the skills, to identify the skills that we already have. And often it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily sitting and, you know, talking, talking to your therapist. It might be going kickboxing. Yeah, exactly. I met, I met my um, friend on the street the other day and she was, she was going, Kate, oh, the drum and bass. I've been punching, <laughs> I've been punching and punching. It's marvellous. It's brilliant. <laughs> the, no the number of people I know of, our sort of age that are currently doing some sort of kickboxing or boxing. Yeah, and how therapeutic is that? To allow rage to come out. Yeah, exactly. To let to let that free. I think, you know, we have to remember as well, you know, with negative experiences and, and trauma as such, it creates a neural network. And so you know, that's why it doesn't really go away. It's not about necessarily breaking it, it's about creating new patterns. Mm. And we're talking about um here, the autonomic nervous system, you know, so just briefly, so your listeners maybe have a, a better understanding that um, we've got the sympathetic nervous system, which is, is more active. So you can think about that as giving us energy and focus, um, sometimes known as flight or fright. So, you know, you could think of yourself running away from danger, but it also is needed to be switched on when we get out of bed or when we are, you know, physically active, running, walking, whatever we are doing, it's not all negative. Um, and then the parasympathetic nervous system, the kind of rest and digest side, which is that time when we are able to rest and digest and, and often feel safe and soothed. But if we get too deep into that, it can almost translate into depression. So this, you know, it's kind of it's like a, a spectrum of 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 where you are on this line of parasympathetic and, and sympathetic nervous system. And and actually, there are things we can do to help. Whether you know, if you have dealt with an adverse experience before, and those techniques you learnt or perhaps activities you did are not working, it's just like we were saying, finding something else and tapping into the vagus nerve, which. Mm. So let's, let's let's bring out the um the box of toys now and talk about <laughs> the lovely things that you offer your people to repattern to create different ways of be, of being and manage this these traumatic experiences that might be showing up. I think movement is key for me. Well, um, you could say that, wouldn't you? 
Yeah, I would. I'm slightly biased, but I think. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's brilliant. I think that's really true. But I think as well, you know, I still speak to so many people, and they say, "Oh, you're a yoga teacher," you know, and the, the, the usual chat. I do Pilates, all this, or you know, whatever it might be. The response might be, and I sort of always point it out. Go well. Actually, you might think of you know, some people just imagine a downward dog or a triangle. So, but they've only been in yoga for the last three, 400 years. You know, it's not, it's a, those yoga postures we often call them or yoga, I like to call them yoga shapes. It feels more accessible. Um, are recent additions to yoga. So when I say movement, I'm really talking about some kind of fluid exploration, this kind of invitation of somatic. I like to use a bit of Feldenkrais in my, in my teaching as well. That idea of exploring how movement feels for you. So you're not just stuck in a shape. There's a bit of movement. There's an invitation to explore the sensations in your body, that interoception, which teaches us to listen to our inner selves. And yes, breath work, you know, can be helpful, but it's not always a safe space or a safe place for someone to go. So mm. the, it, Ooh, can know, we talk a bit about that too? Talk about deep yeah. breathing and, and yeah. how it's not always great to take a deep breath. Yeah. It's I mean, I think, you know, if you've, if you've had a, a sexual trauma of some sort and a deep, harsh breath takes you back to that place listening to your breath or connecting with any sort of breath work might not feel safe for you you know um so it's really for me being aware of of these things you know how how can you make a breathing technique safe perhaps mm. that's very simply feeling the cooler air as you breathe in and the warmer air as you breathe out maybe it isn't safe and it's it's encouraging people to find that place of safety i use a bit of tapping just you know fingers on on eyebrows and around certain um pressure points that could be the safe place it could be simply connecting with something in the room and just bringing your eyes back to that spot because you just feel you can ground yourself there or it could be connecting with whatever you're sitting or lying on so i think this idea of you know come back to your breath which you often hear in a class isn't always going to be a safe place for someone to come back to um i was in a workshop a few weeks ago actually and um it was a breath work workshop with something else as well with a kind of um a tea experience which was lovely but what was really really interesting is it it was delivered it wasn't delivered in a trauma aware or trauma informed approach now it was fine nobody necessarily knew i was a yoga teacher there and i was able to recalibrate and change it how I wanted to but the person facilitating it was forcing the point and that person could see that some people had stopped and weren't joining in and he you know, keep it going keep it going keep it going it was a full hour of very very strong breath work and what was interesting in the sharing circle at the end of that was there was somebody in that room that had worked in the police force and it was making him feel very unsafe which is why he stopped and I sat there and I just thought that for me, thank goodness, I'm trauma aware because actually in that space, that person had had a really bad experience or resurfacing of a bad experience. And I guess as a facilitator, I just, I hope that I, I, I never, that never happens in, in any of my classes. I think particularly with breathwork, it's important to, Try it out and see what it does. Mm. You know, this does this make me more um, activated, or does this calm me down? Yeah. yeah. 
Because it's all so different to people. Yeah. And actually, it's the inhalation that tends to make everything more active and focused. And it's the exhalation that calms us down. So I do tend to focus on the exhalation, um, trying to make it equal to or longer than the inhalation. Um, and that can be that genuinely can be helpful if somebody's comfortable doing it. There can be a real sense of calm um, and a, a sense of grounding which which can be incredibly helpful mm. um but sort of the faster breath or faster breathing techniques i i, I stay away from i mm. stay away from something good ujjayi breath which creates a sound in the, in the back of the throat because i again I, I i don't feel comfortable teaching that and a lot of trauma reform teacher will be very happy teaching that and using invitational language um in my experience teaching people tend to do what you're doing an invitation is quite a new idea. So, you know, you might invite them to bring, bring, you know, some sound to the breath and say Ujjayi breath, and they'll just do it without really thinking about it. And so actually, if I just don't teach it, I know I'm, for me, I, 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 that I'm taking that element of, of forced um, technique out of it. It's so interesting to hear you talk about choice of language and I can really hear the care and respect that you both have for individual experiences actually and the variety of experience that people come. I think I think that's really important is that we often we often talk and I say we as the sort of collective all of us of the perimenopause um being an experience and you may get some some symptoms and you may get others but it's so individual and with that comes you know you wrapped up in a ball with all your medical conditions all your mental health all your physical health conditions and we're not ever going to be able to separate that out and pick out one from another and decide oh one symptom may be more related to this and one may be more related to that and nor should we because we're not a single problem or we're not a single cell. So I think enabling women to think of themselves more of a holistic person and not just my, my lung condition or my mental health condition or the fact that I've broken my arm, think of us as a whole and then thinking of the perimenopause or the menopause wrapped around that and how that might be influencing everything. And as we said right at the beginning, that doesn't need to be negative. As with what we've spoken about before, Kate, and, and with your book, it's very much, let's make this a positive experience. Make, let's make this an individual experience. And no two women are the same. No two women are going to experience the perimenopause or the menopause the same. So we shouldn't try and have a one-size-fits-all. Just like, you know, some women won't want to take medication for their perimenopause and some women will it's it's having the choice and providing women with that support and the choice to be able to say well actually no I'm not going to go down that route I'm going to go down this route and that that's fine mm. what works for you mm. absolutely and that I, I often people often ask me am I is this normal <laughs> am I normal <laughs> My yeah, huge variety of possibilities. Yeah, variety. And I think we know that, don't we, already? We know that, 
you know, I experienced periods differently to somebody else, or I've experienced, you know, eating something differently. I know that for me, I'm a celiac. Eating gluten makes me unwell. That doesn't mean to say that everybody that eats gluten is going to be unwell. It's just having that knowledge and knowing what this applies to everything about me. And I am not the same as anybody else. And I think that's the problem with the research that we were talking about earlier. Is it's blanket research at the moment about a whole variety of women's health that just doesn't stand up anymore. Um, and we've, Carol and I have spoken about this before in that, you know, there's poor quality evidence, there's poor quality research. And that's partly because women don't get studied very well. Um, and we're, we're a bit difficult to study. That's well, we go into all sorts of reasons why that is, and it's obviously probably mostly misogynistic. But I, but I'm not going to go down that path. It just is that it's it's there isn't enough evidence out there for a lot of this th these things we do. So we have to use our common sense, and we have to look at the person in front of us and say, what what what's going on? What's going on for you? And what do you want? Mm. And I think as well, going back to the idea of, of these adverse experiences coming up, we know how we feel through our monthly cycle, if we're having that cycle. And, and Kate, in your book, you talk about the seasons. And, and, and so actually, it just makes sense, doesn't it, that, that we are, as individuals, we know how we might feel at certain times if we're, we're connecting with our cycle and we've made... I guess that kind of mental note of where we are and how we feel that actually as we come through perimenopause into this autumnal phase that actually it's it's like getting ready for hibernation isn't it almost um for a little while so things will likely come up because they've got to just be dealt with mm. before we go into a little bit of hibernation as we come through this transition so for me it can it just makes sense that the adverse experiences may well resurface or surface from, mm. from nowhere. Mm. But I think that's incredibly tough for people because that anxiety, that low mood, that depression, that lack of confidence, that kind of impending sense of doom that suddenly comes out of nowhere is incredibly difficult mm. when you are juggling everything else in your life and who, who you are at that time in that moment. Especially if you don't expect it. And especially yeah. if it's pathologized as failure, weakness, rather than vulnerability. Yeah, absolutely. In need of care and time and patience. Exactly. The words around the perimenopause aren't particularly positive, are they? The change. You know, end of your reproductive life, ovarian failure. You know, it's not very positive and I think changing changing the way we think about that is really important um I spoke to a woman yesterday in fact who was so in tune with how her moods were related to her cycles very perimenopausal and she said I wish I had grasped this 20 years ago I wish I couldn't I could tell my younger self this is all related or in a lot of it is related 
to your hormones and she could sort of go from day to day during her month and go right this is how I'm going to be feeling and it was so much more predictable I think what knowledge you know what power you have to be able to go right it's day 14 this is what how I'm going to feel mm-hmm. and, it and deal with it and that's a positive thing you know you preempting things but you're right sometimes these cognitive difficulties suddenly appear and they can also creep up on us to the point of Oh my God, where did this come from? Um, but that's why these conversations are so helpful and so important. Uh, come on, Claire, bring out your sunshine. Sunshine, Claire. <laughs> bring out. I'm aware that we, 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 we preface this by saying, you know, we, we want to talk about the joy and the positivity and we're getting quieter and more and more serious as we go along. <laughs> so, hmm. I think that (laughs) no, we can't get away from the fact that the rhetoric out there is that the menopause is going to be a negative experience. That is out there. That has persisted for years. What I think certainly we are trying to, and a lot of people are trying to change, is is how it is knowledge, is how we think about the perimenopause, how we prepare for it, how we educate our sons, our daughters, and how we empower younger people. So not just talking about periods and how to stop getting pregnant and practicing safe sex and what happens postnatally. Let's talk about the perimenopause at school. Let's add that into our PHSE and let's just empower women, you know, just say this is gonna happen, let's make it fun. I think we have to laugh, don't we? We have to smile sometimes. I've been, I would, I've taught a, I have one teen yoga class. I teach one teen yoga class once a week, 11 to sort of 16, 17 year olds. And actually tonight, um, I was, I think it was 12 in the class, a couple online. It's kind of a, a dual class. And, uh, I put my notebook down cause I, you know, I have to write things down cause otherwise nothing would ever happen at this point in my life. And, um, and I said, like, Oh, sorry, where's my, my notebook? And they're all laughing at me cause it's right in front of me and I you know straight away I'm like you know what's you know what's going on with me everybody my perimenopause brain you know so I do name it in that class and we laugh about it a little bit as well but actually if I don't laugh I might cry but it's I'm able to cope with that and laugh at myself and include that conversation but for me teaching that age group it's just really important because they might notice that symptom in a parent and so for me, it's saying, you know, them going home and saying, oh, okay, you know, Caroline was, she'd put a notebook down right in front of her and she couldn't see it, she lost it, you know, a bit like I do on a daily basis with various things. Um, and she was joking that it's perimenopause or menopause, or they go home and say, what's menopause? You know, Caroline was joking about that. And so that, it, for me, it's just these little things. It's not hiding behind the fact that my notebook was there and, you know, I couldn't see it. It's actually just naming it and saying, if that translates in any way to somebody else, then that's helpful, isn't it? And that's and that's a positive thing. You know, it, information is power. We know that. If you, you know, we can feel empowered if we know what to expect roughly. Just give us an idea mm. of what might what, what might happen. I was um, I was in surgery last week. Put my stethoscope around my neck, and then when he came in, couldn't find it anywhere. So spent a few minutes looking for it and. He was a bit bewildered because he didn't know what I was looking for. But then I said, I can't find my stethoscope anywhere. I'm just going to pop out the room and get get another one. 
And he, um, bless him, he tapped me on the shoulder and said, Doc, Doc, it's round your neck. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's really embarrassing. And I could just tell he was looking at me in a bit of a weird way going, I don't quite know who I'm seeing here. Um, are you an actual doctor? Um, <laughs> do you know what a stethoscope? Anyway, so that was one of, one of many... Um, one of many funny stories. Uh, I often, um, I think you froze last time, but I often wash my teeth with moisturiser. So, so twice this week I have. And I mean, the moisturiser doesn't look like my toothpaste, does it? It just doesn't in the cupboard, but still that's the one I pull out. So I don't know why, but that's what I've done. So all these little funny stories are, you know, just what happens and it's fine, completely fine. I laugh about it um mostly hmm. and I think I think that there's this there is the laughter and then there's a bigger um meaning which is about can I allow myself to fail mm. you know can I allow myself to you know to can those those layers of professionalism, can I allow that to peel back and be, you know, human <laughs> to, to make mistakes? And I think that is one of these the real gifts of menopause. It's a, such a gift because we can't hold on to our rigid personas anymore. You know, I was very I, I when people ask me about um, my menopause story, I often tell that story about being very attached to being a therapist who knows things. So, and then I didn't know anything. I, I couldn't, I actually stopped talking to my clients for, for about three years. Like, hello. And I, in my diary, I put, um, I'd remake, make the next appointment. And I put this client at 6 p.m. because I had no idea of their name. <laughs> I'd have to go, oh, and I could go and look at the notes afterwards, but, you know. Yeah. But I think actually they, they did much better because I didn't bang on so much, you know. They just they were they they were left with their own experience. But I probably thought it was very therapeutic that I was going, hmm. <laughs> but I, this I client, I love that. This client. I'm gonna start <laughs> But I think as well it's that as you say, it's that allowing ourselves, giving ourselves permission to be human, to be just we are we are humans we are fallible it doesn't matter we've always been fallible it's not like you know this suddenly is a you know we're getting forgetful at this point in our life There's, you know we've always always made mistakes in some way mm. and how do we treat ourselves when we make these mistakes do we berate ourselves or do we go i've made this mistake actually that's a really useful year learning opportunity in some way um and showing people around you that this is okay you know i think it's been quite interesting as people have approached me, people I know, friends, um, other people, they're just really, I think, relieved somebody else is talking about it. And they maybe don't want to talk about it as loudly as say we are, and me personally, um, happily naming things, um, but really happy that I am because they can go, oh, right, okay, yeah, I can talk to Caroline. <laughs> She's happy to lay it all out there, you know. And yeah, um, yeah it was th that kind of, I remember it was now, it was about four years ago now when I started growing out my um, my grey hair. And people just spoke to my roots for about six months. <laughs> like, like women with big breasts who say, yeah. say that all conversations are addressed to their like, cleavage. It's and, it was, I mean, it was never men actually, it was always women. 
wow. talking to my roots. And I thought that's really fascinating. I found it really fascinating. And I was quite, you know, I was really happy. I knew what I was doing. I was quite, you know, I was quite excited about this process and this journey. And I was just going to, you know, grow it out. And I, yeah, it was really interesting. It was really interesting. You could just people go, oh gosh, right. Okay. She's gross. She's great. She's growing at her roots, you know, and, um, fast forward to today it took probably a couple of years actually and to, you know i've got this kind of mottled dark and gray hair but it was a really interesting process to go through people's perception of me and the way they then talked to me rather than actually talked to me they just talked to the top of my head um, but that for me just I guess owning my identity, owning who I was, just going, right, I'm quite happy with who I am. I'm ready for this process. I'm, you know, um, and for a lot of people, I think they found it a, a little bit um, in their face, I guess. It was like, oh, oh, gosh, you're doing that. Oh, wow. You know, and the number of people have since come up to me and said, gosh, I really like your hair. Oh, I, you know, I, I keep thinking about doing it. I you know I wish I could do that, you know, and it's a massive leap letting go of I guess youth is this is, is what it's really classed as you know that kind of non-gray hair transitioning into what would be our second spring and embracing the gray hair you know I many people do go gray much younger but that was a really interesting process because I've had so many people say to me oh gosh I wish I you know I wish I was brave enough or I wish I could do that it's like and I hate this phrase it's that growing old gracefully phrase I hate that phrase and I know hate's a very strong word but I really do hate it and we grow old and we grow old in whatever way we want and I think you know growing gray and having just another one of the, on a long list of things that we as um perhaps are are not expected I think that's too strong a word, but a thought that maybe we should just be doing we should all be colouring our hair and we should be trying to hang on to youth as much as possible um and I'm not sure that's the right thing to do oh I hate it so much it's about behaving it's about <laughs> behaving nicely isn't it get back in your box don't you know don't wear purple yeah don't make too much noise definitely don't swear and you know Put some put some pastels on, why don't you? <laughs> ah! oh, I live in a very conservative city. Edinburgh is quite conservative. I feel like I feel absolutely happy to name that. And it's it was interesting when I moved up, gosh, nearly twenty years ago now, um, from London, and I had these brilliant pair of white pixie boots that I'd bought in the Oxfam in Dalston. I just loved them. I lived in them, and I was you know as soon as I got them, I was hoping they you know would have them forever and i remember wearing them in edinburgh and people would just stare at me i'd never been stared at before people would look at me up and down and look at the boots and i just remember thinking my goodness you know whereas i go over to glasgow slightly different they're slightly different on the west coast and just just it's probably a bit more i guess like london in that kind of it's just a bit more fluid and uh, and that's what i felt like growing up my gray hair i was like oh gosh okay i'm a bit different i better not be a bit different it's, I'm better off just fitting. I've never wanted to fit in. I think that's that's probably been my problem. I've always wanted to be a little bit different on out there, but um, I don't like to be put in a box. But I think, like you were just saying, Kate, it's about behaving. And actually, there is a rhetoric there around women behaving, particularly. I'm using that gender term, but, you know, about women behaving. And actually, we're not behaving at the moment because <laughs> there's a lot of chat around perimenopause and menopause, and, and we're not being 
yeah, we're not in our boxes. So let's seek beautifully into the advantages of lower estrogen. <laughs> One of my fave topics. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Oh, I love that. Is I love that transition. Hilarious? That was beautiful transition. Particularly, <laughs> and your your listeners won't be able to have seen that, but you did a lovely little dance there. I did a little dance. Which is why we were giggling so so much. There are advantages. It is your second spring. You know, I think from from a from a, I guess from a Western medicine point of view, there are downsides to having lower estrogen. We can't get away from that. And and so that's with my GP hat on. But I think, you know, it does enable you to have this new chapter. This is your next chapter. Um, and enabling you to sort of acknowledge that and move, move purposely forward in whatever way you choose, whether that's with medication, without medication, or alternatives, that is that is your choice, and that's within your power. And I think that's what the menopause gives women, is that the power, you can regain that power for yourself. No periods. It's yeah. got to be named, isn't it? I love the idea of no periods. I mean, it's just, you know... I say it's, an, it's still an idea for me because it's still getting the odd one. <laughs> but this kind of freedom of that um, and that, I believe, new energy. Um, because a menstrual cycle is exhausting. Mm. No, the, the kind of the exhaustion of it. So the other side, that renewed energy and that perhaps renewed sense of purpose if if that's the direction you want to go in i think coming through this transition there's a there's a kind of a sorting out there's a potentially an opportunity to use it positively if you feel able to to get rid of any debris to just reevaluate um and come out the other side, perhaps with some renewed energy and ideas as well. Tapping into your creativity in any form that that takes. I don't, you know, I'm not talking just about creativity, creativity in an art form, you know, creativity in the way you think, the way you are, the way you dress, the way you feel this opportunity to explore a, a newfound freedom. I had a woman recently, sorry, another anecdote alert who fell pregnant at the drop of a hat. She had seven children and she was on the pillar for one of those. And I said, did you really take it properly? Yes, I did. Um, and she said, you know what? Now I don't have periods. And now you've told me I can't get pregnant. I can have sex as often as I like. <laughs> That's, nice. That's a positive. You know, that should be celebrated. Okay, I'm going to add to the list, not pleasing people all the time, pesky oestrogen. Yeah. This is so nice. We're pushovers. <laughs> Would you please pick up my thing from miles away? No. Bloody yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Like you> won't. <laughs> the power of saying no more. Yes. Yep. Power of no. Okay. And my other, my other little, my, my other little, one of the reasons I was doing my little dance is because 
um, at ovulation, there was some research that showed that women women are more um, uh, competitive with each other. Like there's more kind of gearing up, more clothes. I mean, basically, you know, evolutionary. We want we want we want better sperm. So you better wear a bigger hat or necklace or whatever. You know, wear, wear white boots. <laughs> I think it had the adverse effect, Kate, if I'm honest. But I'm <laughs> sure it would have worked much. in Dalston. It would have been gone down. <laughs> but without that, you know, without that that um, ovulatory high, I what I notice is that um, postmenopausal second spring people work together better. And that's really fascinating because it's gritty. I'm I think, that... sorry, I'm interrupting you, but it's yeah. there's, there's less kind of, no. I don't think what I mean by that, there's less sandpaper, and gritty kind of yeah. connections. It's a bit, it just feels a bit more smoother and collaborative. And I know what I find in my classes specifically for women in perimenopause and menopause, there's a, there's a lot of chat and there's just this lovely, there's a sense of warmth. So once that person knows that's where they are, whether it is perimenopause or postmenopause, there's this kind of understanding and this, there's just this lovely warmth in the room and connection. And I, I facilitate chat afterwards for those who want to. And I say facilitate, I'm just there to, to help, you know, um, and support women to talk if they'd like to. But actually, it's not always about symptoms or perimenopause or menopause. It's just about being together and how nice it is and just connecting with some different people of all ages. Somebody quite recently came to my class and she's in her thirties and she said, I'm just so grateful mm. because every time I mention this to my friends, they just switch off because mm. she's going through a slightly younger perimenopause and they're just not there yet, you know, and, and I, it, you know, and that was lovely because actually she just felt she was part of this group immediately and mixture of kind of from her age up to kind of fifties. And I think that connection, like you were just saying, it's, it's smoother. There isn't a looking up and down. There isn't a, you know, as you say, a bit of competition. There is no competition, which just as an acceptance, this is where I'm at. And I feel, you know, okay with that. And I'm just coming to connect with other women at that stage. Yeah, a bit, we're a bit softer with each other kindness and and just openness that that i i think doesn't happen in your in your reproductive years like you say kate um i think it's a different time isn't it it's, it feels more collaborative yeah that's yeah. that's my experience so before we close um, Claire, can I ask you for your, your bestest, toppiest tip-top tip for easing, maybe, maybe for easing emotion, for people who are feeling emotionally challenged at the moment? I think, can I do two? You can have as many as you like. Okay. It's Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> um, acceptance, I think. Um, allow yourself to accept where you are and to know that that is okay. Whatever you're feeling is okay. Um, and the second thing I would say is if you can talk to somebody, 
or journal or speak to a trusted friend or a trusted GP. If you feel that you're, you're in that position and you're at that point where you're able to do that, do a bit of research on who that might be in terms of health professionals. Find out who might be better for you and match you better and speak to them because these are the sort of conversations I'm having a lot and I find that it doesn't need to be a very paternalistic conversation. It can be a chat with your GP. You do need to obviously find the right one, but it doesn't necessarily need to be your GP, but just talk if you're able to. Because being in your head isn't always the best solution. It's sometimes the only solution for many of us, but if you can just take yourself outside of your head for a few moments, it can often be really, really helpful. Thank you. Caroline, what you got for us? Oh, what have I got? Mm -hmm. um, I think Claire stole one. Yeah, no, nothing's, no, uh, nothing's permanent, or I should say everything is impermanent. So, you know, just with that in mind, you know, it, things aren't always forever, if that makes sense. So having that in mind, and I would say movement. Now, of course, I would say movement, but I do not mean exercise. I do not mean exercise. I'm going to say that one more time. I do not mean exercise. You mean exercise? <laughs> no, I no? do not. Oh, you don't mean exercise. Okay, I think that's clear now. <laughs> Because I think, well, I know yoga is often called next size. It's not, you know, it's that kind of mind body practice. And you, you know, Kate, because you lead beautiful yoga nidra as well. Um, but movement, I just mean walking. I mean, perhaps planting up some pots, you know, some bit of gardening if you've got a bit of space or a pot for your window ledge. I mean, I mean, movement in any form you feel you can take it. Um, and this is, it's free. You know, something that's free is walking, walking just round the block. I'm a, I'm still a city girl through and through, and I love walking around the city. Um, I know I've got friends that love going up into the hills on the outskirts of Edinburgh, and they just go up some of the little hills and, and find the parks and the greenery. But just walking movement, it, it helps movement, somatic movement of some sort helps us process how we're doing, how we're feeling. It doesn't have to mean connecting with nature. It just means simply moving your body and exploring, exploring your thoughts. And as you move, you're able to process them that little bit easier. Mm, lovely, thank you. And when you, you nothing, nothing can stay the same if your if your body is moving. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Thank you so much. So lovely to be. Here, connecting with you again. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You can find Claire and Caroline on social media at The Menopause Sisters, and their podcast of the same name is on UK Health Radio. And if you have a rummage there, you'll also find the podcast they recorded with me as a guest, too. And they were so kind, they were so lovely. It was great to have a, a return match. <laughs> My book, Second Spring, The Self-Care Guide to Menopause, is available from your favourite bookshop. And Amazon, of course, is ever-present, very easy. But don't forget that your independent bookshop 
Also, we'll do a nifty mail order service for you. If you want to see what I've been up to, the best place to find me is on Instagram, where I'm Kate underscore Codrington. And I'd love to hear from you. Please let me know what topics you want covered or who you'd like me to interview. And it would be wonderful to if you could share the podcast with a friend, either on social media or even in real life. I'll be back very soon with a peek into another fascinating inner world. <laughs>